This is not a podcast about leaf blowers, but we should start with leaf blowers. Leaf blowers that either evolved from Japanese gardens, from snow blowers, or from a guy named Dom Quinto, who took a device designed to spread chemicals around and took out the chemical part of it. Leaf blowers are a symptom of a lot of things about changes in our culture. Hey, it's Seth, and this is Akimbo. We'll be back in a second to talk about 77 decibels, the suburbs, and change. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. Make things better by making better software. Our life's mediated by software, and we'd hope it does what it should and not what it shouldn't, but we know that's not always the case. The Association for Software Testing is a non-profit dedicated to making better software. In our industry-renowned training, practitioners share expertise and experience in small cohort groups with an emphasis on doing. We have a pay-what-you-can membership model for diversity and inclusivity. Look us up, associationforsoftwaretesting.org. Yes, leaf blowers are against the law in my wonderful little town between May and October. And after October 15th, they're sort of against the law because the typical leaf blower that's run on gasoline emits 77 decibels or more of sound, which is a lot. Also, leaf blowers based on internal combustion engines, 30 minutes of using one, will put out as many pollutants as driving a Ford F-150 pickup truck from Texas to Alaska. Also, they are a symbol of the suburbs because lots of people in the suburbs have yards and grass and trees, and lots of people in the suburbs hire folks to get rid of their leaves, and they pay those people by the hour, and those people are incented to be more efficient, hence the leaf blower. But what I wanted to talk about is why, in the face of all of the problems that leaf blowers cause with noise, and air pollution, why aren't they all being replaced by battery-powered leaf blowers, which make way less noise and emit far less pollution? And so my building reached out to the gardener a month before he was scheduled to come and said, look, you can't keep using the gas-powered leaf blowers. They're noisy, they pollute, they're against the law. Well, they showed up with the old kind, and the building said, what are you doing? He said, next time we'll bring the right kind of leaf blower. Next time is what allows culture to stay the way it is. Next time is why General Motors and Ford lost the 80s and the 90s to the Japanese manufacturers. They came from nowhere and ended up with huge amounts of market share, market share that they maintain to this day because of the danger of next time. When we are facing a situation where change is difficult or expensive or scary, we take a look at all of the things that are on the table right here, right now, right this minute, and we realize that instituting change when we are this busy, this stressed, this underwater, when there are so many promises that have been made, instituting change is just too expensive and too difficult. We'll do it next time. So you've heard me talk about the quality of American cars in the 1970s and 80s. And the reason for the problem is simple. It's not because they didn't know that the cars were pretty lousy. 
it's because the assembly line ran supreme. The assembly line pioneered by Henry Ford. The assembly line, if you could make it go a little faster, your labor costs per car would go down. If you could make it go a little faster, your productivity would go up. The assembly line was everything. Everyone worked for the assembly line. What did they do in Japan? What they did in Japan was a series of steps that sometimes are called kanban, but involve many pieces, all designed to lower the level of water in the river so that the rocks will be seen immediately. And if you were working on the assembly line of a Toyota plant making a $3,000 car in 1975, and the screw you had, you only had one screw, one bolt handy, and the assembly line brought forward the next car, and you put that bolt in and it didn't fit properly, you must press the red button. You must pull the rope, and that would stop the assembly line. Not the whole assembly line, but your section of the assembly line. Something like that gets you fired in Detroit. Something like that is the key in building quality in Japan in the 1970s. Why? Because we're not going to fix it next time. We're going to fix it this time. And this time is fraught. This time is more expensive. This time makes everyone pay attention. But when we decide to fix something this time, it gets fixed. Because we have determined that quality is more important than keeping the assembly line running. So in the case of the hapless gardener for my building, this time would have meant that he would have had to reschedule people, that he would have had to figure out how to get his hands on leaf blowers that ran on batteries, that he would have had to give rakes to his people. But then he would have been through it. He would have been over it. And every other job, every other client going forward would have all the tools they needed because he didn't want to experience the hassle of this time again. When we get our arms around this time, we understand what it means to prepare and to prioritize. There's a term in cooking called mise en place. And mise en place is what a competent chef does. And what they do is they prepare and cut and size and measure every one of the ingredients before they start firing up the new orders, before they start putting together whatever it is they're making. Mise en place has two benefits. First, it's its own reward. The act of doing mise en place establishes for you that you're a professional, that you're the kind of person that plans ahead, that you're the kind of person that isn't making situational compromises. And number two is it means that this time it's going to get done right. That when you've already fired things up, when the wok is hot, when two-thirds of the ingredients are in there, and you realize you don't have the leaks, well, you cut the leaks fast. You don't cut the leaks well. Because fast is something that we need to do right now or everything will burn. Next time, we'll do it well. But with mise en place, next time is this time. So as we look around in a culture that is filled with things that need to get fixed, the long, long overdue focus on racial injustice, the idea that we are putting every day so much carbon into the air that it is rising the temperature 
of everything around us, melting the ice caps and basically putting our planet at risk, there's a lot of talk of next time, of next administration, of next year, of next budget, of next cycle, and yes, of next generation. But that means we're not serious. It means we're not serious enough to do it this time. And so I know this is a short rant, but I wanted to just focus on those two words, this time. If it's important enough to fix, it's important enough to fix this time. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. We'll be back in a second with three questions from previous episodes. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. No ad this week. In fact, an ad about the ads. If you visit akimbo.link, you'll see a new button up there. Let me explain it to you really quick. My friends run akimbo.com, a B Corp that hosts the workshops that you've been hearing about here. But the Akimbo podcast is separate from that. And so going forward, every once in a while, I will talk about some of the workshops my friends are running. But in the meantime, I'd like to talk about what you're interested in. In fact, I'd like you to talk about what you're interested in. So if you visit akimbo.link, you'll see a way that you can upload a 30-second ad for a nonprofit, for a cause, or even for a hobby that you care about. Nothing commercial, please. Of course, I can't promise I'll be able to include all of them. There are guidelines at akimbo.link about how to do it and what to include and not include. The focus is 100% non-commercial and non-profit. I can't wait to see what you've got going on. Hey, Seth, it's Maria. Hey, Seth, my name's Kyle. Greetings, Seth. This is Stephen out in Madison, Wisconsin. Hi, Seth. Alicia from Charleston here. Hi, Seth. This is Anupam. Hi, this is Caitlin. Hi, Seth. Warm greetings from Curacao. Hey, Seth. My name is Nick Ryan from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Hey, Seth. This is Rex. Hey, Seth. Hi, this is Vasilis from Greece. Hi, this is Roberta Perry. My question is... And that completes my question. As you know, I love to hear from you. If you've got a question about this or any previous episode, or anything else, please visit akimbo.link, that's A-K-I-M-B-O dot L-I-N-K, and click the appropriate button. Here we go. If I want to create something for people like us, how do I make sure that that thing is also inclusive? Obviously, at first, I won't have everybody in the world banging down my door to be part of my thing. But I imagine at some point, I'll start attracting people who maybe aren't people like us and that I have to say no to. How do I think about doing this in a way that's generous to everybody, even though it's not necessarily for everybody? Thanks. Thank you for giving me a chance to clarify this again. It's really important and easy to misunderstand. People like us do things like this has nothing to do with demographics or things that are usually considered when we talk about inclusion. It's not about how old you are or what you look like. It's about who you decide to be, who you choose to hang out with, the change you seek to make. When Miles Davis made Kind of Blue, considered by many one of the great jazz records of all time, a whole bunch of people didn't like it. There are still people today, dear friends of mine, who don't like it. He couldn't have made an album that everyone was going to like. When someone bumps into Kind of Blue and they say, I don't like it, 
That doesn't mean it's not good. It just means it's not for them. And it doesn't matter how popular the thing you're working on is. There are people who have given one-star reviews to Harry Potter or Star Wars or Billions or whatever you want to look at. It's not for everyone. It can't be for everyone. But we've been pushed to think we have to sand off all the edges. Instead, my argument is be inclusive demographically. But when it comes to the voice that you are adopting, the change you seek to make, it's totally fine to say, sorry, it's not for you. My question today has to do with your recent episode about the blue card and Intel finding the right person. I'll be honest, I've had a horrible track record in hiring because I see potential in people, people who, if they would, would make enormous contributions to the organization. However, from my experience, I ended up hiring 80% potential and 20% capacity. And what I ended up was with one employee and four people who needed constant supervision. So how do you do the work between deciding who should be hired? Is it purely based on competence demonstrated before? How much potential do you hire? Love to hear your thoughts. Thank you, sir. Have a great day. Thank you for this question. You know, I am no expert at this. I have had great success in finding people to work with, but also frustrating moments when people who I had hoped would grow into an opportunity blinked when they looked at that opportunity. And a lot of that is on me, not just in who I have chosen to work with, but in the conditions that I created to give people the foundation and the confidence that they needed to go forward. But one thing that I found, which is so much easier today than it used to be, is a variation on hire quickly, fire quickly. The idea of hire quickly, fire quickly is we're really bad at picking people. So don't worry about it. Just hire people. But then if folks can't thrive in the place that you are able to provide them, well then have them move on. And the problem with hire quickly, fire quickly is that firing is no fun and it's really disruptive, not just to your organization, but to the person who trusted you. Well, the magic of the freelance world is that now you can have people do a project. That instead of interviewing people to see if they're good at interviewing, you can have people do a project to see if they're good at doing a project. And after you've done one or two or three projects with someone, if you are both thriving in that relationship, the hiring is much less fraught because they're going to do what you've already asked them to do. This is a real shift from the industrial cog mindset. What it says is you have a work, a product that you can create. You have a way of being in the world. It works for both of us. Come do that here all the time. And you should pay people for these projects that they are doing for you. That part of the interviewing process probably could include, here, $2,000, I need you to do a day's work for me. We're gonna do it together and we're gonna see how it goes. Because in those moments, you're no longer auditioning, you're actually doing the work. I worked for many years in IT now, and what I notice is that technical people who find important security issues sometimes have a hard time to get management to take it seriously and focus on those issues. 
managers often say they find security important, but then it lacks priority. I know the frustration, and I've looked for creative ways to deal with this problem. A few years back, I gave a presentation called How to Sell Security, in which I implore the audience to give impactful presentations, explain how we can apply Robert Cialdini's book Influence to nurture our management, and explain them something about change management, which I learned from Dan and Chip Heath's book Switch. I'm also considering to create a YouTube video, video about this as well. As I'm not really a marketing person, I'm probably missing some good approaches. So you have a pretty creative way of looking at things. What can frustrated technical people do to protect their organization's data better? I still remember a kid telling me a story. It was as short as could be. The boy cried wolf, but the villagers didn't come. That's all you need to know. That's the entire wolf, wolf story. And one of the problems that organizations have with security flaws is not that their researchers and security people are crying wolf, it's that they don't know where the wolf is. That there are a billion websites and the number that have actually been hacked is vanishingly small. And so the question is, what does your insurance policy look like? We read about a hospital that's held hostage by ransomware and it cost millions of dollars and threatened the lives of all of the patients. But most hospitals didn't get threatened. And so if you're the COO or the board of a hospital and somebody says, you can become ransomware proof for $10 million, do you say yes? What if it's a million dollars? What if it's $100,000? This is the problem. So the researchers, the security folks, they're doing their job. They are correct that there is a potential problem here. That's not what's being decided. What's being decided is what is our risk profile when it comes to this? And because we are all living on a frontier, a frontier that hasn't been explored for decades or centuries, people have no idea what the right risk profile is. And so generally, partly out of ignorance, partly out of fear, partly out of uncertainty, the budget is really low. Because once you start trying to make something fully secure, it costs more than you're willing to pay. So I think the job of the leader who understands security is to persuade that person's bosses and peers how to make intelligent decisions about what are the high leveraged places? Where is the low hanging fruit? How do you build resilience in from the start without having to deal with the real problem at an emotional and professional level of, I promise you, we're not going to get hacked. Because that's like a doctor saying, I promise you, you're not going to get sick. Or a car designer saying, I promise you that you will survive every accident. Because a car that can survive every accident has never been built and it wouldn't be able to drive. And so getting literate and clear with the people you work with about risk that doesn't mean you're welcome in every meeting. People don't like talking about risk. But as soon as we lean in to anything that's changing and anything new, risk is present. So it shouldn't go unstated. I think it should be mentioned, it should be prioritized, and it should be made clear. I hope that helps. Thanks, everybody, for listening. We'll see you next time. It's not too late. Hey, it's Seth. 
about 16 years ago, I wrote my first post about climate change. And since then, every single metric has gotten worse. But it's not too late. What we need to do is shift it from a me problem to a we problem. And my new project is not my new project. It's our new project. More than 300 volunteers from 40 countries around the world have spent the last bunch of months putting together the Carbon Almanac. It's not coming out till June, but you, my loyal Akimbo listeners, I wanted you to see it and hear about it. First, check out thecarbonalmanac.org for all the details. Thank you for caring enough to make a difference.